Hey there, Messiah. I know times are pretty different. We don't use a pen and paper, but we have 2,000 billion different ways. I know that things have really changed. This might feel strange. Hey there, Messiah. I think right now you should know that I am on my way to work, but I can text you from my phone, so don't you fear. I'm only driving in first gear. Can you hear? texting me oh god just texting me and oh arrow number three oh arrow number three he really does love me oh mg he really does love me Good morning. I, uh, I hate to start this message off on a sad note uh, this morning, but this week our church has uh, lost, said goodbye to a great warrior here at the summit, um, a guy who's been part of our ministry team uh, for a long time. Bill Cutler died on Wednesday night of a heart failure. Bill meant a lot to me personally as he headed my personal prayer team. I can very comfortably say to you that in the last three years there has not been a time that I preached anywhere, whether that was here on a Sunday morning or somewhere where I was traveling to preach, there has not been a time where he did not have a team of people, including himself, that were on their knees praying for me as I preached. Um, I say not a single time. Uh, there are a few exceptions when I forgot to tell him that I was going somewhere, uh, which was sort of a sore spot between he and I because he would come up to me and he would say, Pastor, um, I love to pray, but I'm not omniscient, and uh, you're going to have to tell me when you're going somewhere for me to pray for you. Um, but short of that, every single time that I preached, he, would, um, he and his team would be there uh, somewhere on their knees to pray. A lot of times when people come up to me and they would make a statement to me like, God used you today to change my life, what they, they didn't know was that the power behind what I, what I said was often in the team that was praying for me. And so this morning, for the first time in um, about three years, he will not be praying for me during the service. Um, his, his team is still there, of course, uh, but our church definitely feels the loss of, uh, of this part of our, our ministry team. And, and uh, he leaves some big shoes to fill for others of us who will recognize that really the secret behind all that we do here as a church is the way that we seek God and um, have him bless. It's not a pastor. It's not a a program. It is the power of God, and that's um, the fuel behind it. How fitting, however, though, that we are talking about what we're talking about on the weekend of Bill's death, and that is prayer. What we've been doing for the last few weeks is to look at some of the great prayers in the Bible, and we're going to conclude our, our series today by looking at the model that Jesus gave us for how we should pray in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you may want to go ahead and, and open it up there, Matthew chapter 6. Now, some people have asked me, well, why'd you, you know, why didn't you start with this one? You know, why didn't you start with Jesus' prayer? Well, once you do Jesus' prayer, there's really nowhere to go from there but down. So uh, we left him for the end because he's pretty influential. Um, Matthew chapter 6. I know most of you have prayed this prayer. You know this prayer? Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Right? You know this prayer. You may, you can probably, most of you can quote it. Maybe not that fast, but you, you know, you, you know it. Um, so let's get right into it today. Martin Luther said that this was the kind of prayer that you could pray a thousand times and always learn something new, and that the tragedy was that most people do pray it a thousand times in their life, but never realize the incredible things that are hidden within it. This prayer embodies the essence of what it means to know God as opposed to just being religious, okay? So let me show you what, what, I, what I mean and, and what, what he means by that, all right? Before Jesus actually gets into the prayer to tell us how to pray, what you should first notice is that he spends two to three verses explaining to you how not to pray because he's setting up a contrast, right? So you, you see there in verse five, he says, don't pray like 
the hypocrites, which is Jesus' little pet name for the, the Jewish religious leaders, which is one of the reasons why they killed him. In verse 7, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles, who are also really religious in a very different way, but they were very religious and they prayed. What he's doing is he's drawing a contrast between how religious people pray, it's verses 5 through 8, and then how people who know the gospel pray, right? And, and, and he's going to say, this is how religious people play over here, whether that religion is uh, Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Christianity, American Indians, Buddhists, whatever, right? You got them on one side, and then over here he says, and these are how people who know the gospel pray. Now, I know some of you are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was religious, I thought like he kind of like was sort of the quintessential religious guy, you know, and so, yeah, no, Jesus totally debunked religion, which is why they killed him. And Jesus was against religion, and religion hated him, right? That's another sermon for another day, okay? But, but, but that undergirds everything that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, because you got him drawing a contrast between how religious people pray and how people who know the gospel pray. Well, how do religious people pray? Well, I'll take a look at verse 5 here. Okay, let me give you a couple of characteristics. Number one, religious people, when they pray, they use God. They use God. Verses 5 and 6, let me just read it to you. When you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, who were standing right in front of him, by the way. Jesus was pretty brawny. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners and the churches that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. No, no, no. By contrast, when you pray, you ought to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, Jesus is here describing a group of people who pray as a way of gaining respect from others. And actually, in sort of a strange turn of irony, he is saying the same thing that Nietzsche and Karl Marx and Michel Foucault would say later, and that is that for many people, religion is a means to power. That's a means to an end. It's a way to, to get respect. Religion is a way that you can feel superior to others. It's a means to power, a way of getting control over people. You're the most religious, so you're the most important, and thus you should probably be in charge. Right? Well, obviously, Jesus says, when you use God as a means to an end, God's not a fan of that. The only really genuine motivation to pray or serve God is not to get something from him, but to get more of him. Last week, I compared it to you know, two different kinds of relationships. You got a couple guys that are in a business relationship together, and they don't really like each other. Right? So they don't want to break off the relationship because they make tons of money together. But when they get together, they're not exchanging pleasantries and asking how their day was and trying to get to know each other. They're just trying to get business done. Right? And we compared that to two people who are just totally infatuated and in love with each other, what their conversations are like when they're together. Now, you know what I'm talking about? Have you been there? Or are you there now? All you married people better say yes, okay? You at least remember what it was like when you first started dating. You would get together for hours upon hours upon hours and talk about nothing, Right? You would just talk about how you feel and what you're thinking and, and oh, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? You know, and just for hours on end. Because your conversations were not trying to accomplish an agenda. Your conversations were not there to try to get something beyond that. It was just you wanted to get to know more of them. And I asked you last week, I was like, you know, if, if, if you look at God as a means to an end, if God is useful to you, then you have to discipline yourself to pray. Right? But if God is beautiful to you, as opposed to useful, then you love to pray. Right? So that's the question. Do you find God useful or do you find God beautiful? Do you pray to try to control God to get him to do what you want? Or do you pray to know him more? Does, does that make sense? Useful or beautiful? Well, Jesus actually gives you an acid test. You ready for this one? He gives you an acid test to tell which one of those you do. And that is, do you pray in secret? Watch this. Everything else that you do for God may be done for some other reason. To be seen by others, to gain respect, so that people will admire you, to fit in with your family. That's maybe why you come to church. It's why you live the way you do, because you want to be approved. But prayer in secret is the one thing that you would only do consistently if you want to know more of God. 
there's no other motivation that would consistently lead you to pray in secret. So that's the question. What is your secret prayer life like? You want to evaluate your relationship to God? Put up all your, you know, I go to church, and, and I'm a great Christian leader, and I lots of verses, I sing in the choir, I you know, serve on the ministry team, I raise my hands when I worship, and I know all kinds of theological terms, right? Put up all that stuff, and just ask, how much do you pray in secret? Because that shows how much you are really in all this to know God. By the way, you should notice that when Jesus says hypocrites, he doesn't mean what we usually mean. When we say hypocrites, we think of people who have this, you know, kind of sordid double life. They're in church on Sunday, but throughout the week they're out, you know, having an affair or, or something or cheating on their, uh, their taxes or, or, or scamming things off their business. But, but notice that when Jesus says hypocrite, he's simply referring to someone who has, who does not have a passion to know God. He's super religious, but it's not because they want to know God, it's because they think that he is a way to get something. A better life now, going to heaven when you die, a solid family. You know, I noticed something this week about, about myself. And that is that, you know, I, I start to really get sensitive to my own sin around Saturday night. Right? That's when I, I get really sensitive. And I start to get really sensitive about it. And I start to confess my sin. And I start to you know, try to make things right with my wife. Uh, my wife calls it my, my, my PMS stage, pre-message syndrome. That's what she refers to it as. Uh, you know, it's, but I'm doing that not because I want to know God. It's because I'm getting ready to preach, and I really want God to bless the sermon. See, God is, is for me, sometimes he's like a means to an end. That's what, we're try, what we are doing is we're trying to use God and, and not know God, and that is demonstrated for most of us by how pathetic our secret prayer life is. And it is as hollow to God as the husband who treats his wife simply as his maid, the mother of his children, or simply his sexual partner. There's no love involved. You're just, you're just using him. So that's the first question. First thing Jesus brings up about religious people. It's like, what's your secret prayer life like? Because that'll show you how much you're into this to really know God. Religious people use God. They try to control God when they pray. But Christian people, or people who know the gospel, they pray because they want to know God. Here's number two. Religious people try to impress God. Now look at verse seven. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think they'll be heard for their many words, for their big words. Don't be like them. For your father, watch this, because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Religious people keep repeating these phrases because they think that in saying them, God somehow becomes more excited about answering their prayers here's the thing they assume that god is naturally hostile toward them and only if you say the right things in the right way and say them often enough and loud enough will god become favorably inclined toward you so when they pray they pray to try to get god's attention to try to earn favor with him what's interesting to me about this is that most religions seem to teach some version of this I lived for a while in, uh, with Muslims in Indonesia, and they would, would always get together and chant the Quran over and over again to try to, um, to, try to get God's favor. I, I remember um, I got invited one time to go into somebody's house and to pray for the blessing because they'd just gone through a tragedy, and we're supposed to be there to pray for, for blessing. I thought, sure, you know, I'm not going to pray to the Muslim way. I'm going to pray to God if that's okay. But we sat in there, and so these guys start chanting the Quran just over and over again. It goes on for like an hour. Like, and nobody's talking except just chanting the Quran. Of course, I don't understand what they're saying. And after a while, I sat there. I was like, I prayed for everything I could think of. You know? And I was like, so I literally got next to me. And I'm like, how long does this go on? He's like, oh, I don't know, six or seven hours. You know, it's like till two or three in the morning. I was like, are you kidding? I was like, I think I got to go to the bathroom. I, and I'll be right back. And I, you know, I'd take off and then never came back. Uh, you know, I mean, like some of you do, I see in church when you're like, you know, I preach too long and you slip out of the back, don't come back. You know, they're chanting, they're repeating these things. They think through their much speaking. They are going to be heard. You know, Catholic people have their, their rosary beads or their, their Hail Marys. Protestants have their own versions of these things. Buddhists, uh, Buddhists chant. Uh, you know, when you think about it, it's actually kind of dumb. Of all the things that might impress God, just repeating ourselves over and over and over again, that's what he really, that's what he wants. And my kids come up to me and they say, Dad, I want some chicken nuggets. I want some chicken nuggets. I want some chicken nuggets. I want some chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets. I'm like, okay. 
I get it. You want some chicken nuggets? Now you're annoying me, okay? So next time just ask your mom. You know, I mean, that's... <laughs> the word Jesus literally uses here is the word babbling in Greek. Batalageo. It means that when you pray, you're intense. You keep repeating yourself. You're sweating and screaming and, and stomping your feet and put your hands in the air and you're waxing elephants with God. And, and you think that because of that, God hears you. And you think that if you don't impress him in some way, if you don't earn his attention, he probably won't hear you because he doesn't really care. Well, Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, no, when you pray, you boldly call God Father. Now, what's he getting at? Well, think about your own kids for a minute. Or if you had good parents, think what it was like with, with your parents. One thing I've noticed about my kids is that they are not shy with me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing or how busy I look when I'm doing it. They always think that I got whatever time for them. And, and of course, I love that about them. You know, my kids approach me in ways that anybody else doing it would be disrespectful or rude. Uh, the other week here at Briar, the Briar Creek campus, we were doing a baptism outside there. And, you know, it was right after the service. And there were like 65 people lined up. There was a crowd of 200 people watching. And my three-year-old daughter just busts through the crowd like they're not even there. And just busts through, comes running right up to me because she wants to show me what she drew in Sunday school. You know, she didn't even hesitate that. Of course, I love that. I'm like, oh, look at it. You know, if anybody else did that, that'd be rude, disrespectful. Right? I mean, in fact, people probably in that little audience were thinking, what is... You know, what is she doing? Is she not realize that her daddy is busy? Does she not see the 65 people standing on the screaming hot pavement waiting to be baptized? My daughter has a boldness, right? A boldness. Think, this is one of the things that Christianity teaches that every other religion finds bizarre, if not disrespectful. Muslims think that this is irreverent. And that's the point. It is so intimate, it seems irreverent. So see, Religious prayer is done in a way that you try to coerce God to pay attention to you or to care about you. Gospel prayer flows from the assurance that you already have God's approval. Now, some of you say, well, that's hard for me because I had a bad father who was not there for me. And I don't know what a real daddy is like. Well, of course you do. That's why you're mad. Because you know what a real father is is supposed to have been like don't judge your heavenly father by your earthly one judge your earthly father by your heavenly one i saw this just the other night at the, the stage production at the durham performing arts center the color purple you know the girl in the play had been abused by her dad and so now she's bitter against men and ultimately she ends up hating god because she sees him as a man too but don't do it that way See, don't judge your earthly father, excuse me, judge your earthly father by your heavenly one, not your heavenly father by your earthly one. That's why you're angry at him, because you know instinctively what a real dad is supposed to be like. And that's why he was so disappointing to you. So religious people, religious people pray to impress God. And people who understand the gospel pray with the assurance that God is their loving father, and he already knows and cares about what they need. So again, just to review to make sure you got this, all right? Two categories. Verses 5 through 8, he's showing you what religious people pray like. Religious people pray to use God. Gospel people pray, on the other hand, to know God. Religious people pray, and when they pray, they try to impress God. Gospel people, when they pray, they trust in God as a loving Father. So what Jesus says, watch this, verse 9, pray then, see that word? Pray then like this. In other words, if you know the gospel, if you get it, this is what your prayer life will be like. All right? And what I'm going to give you, these are the five elements of gospel-centered prayer. Now, I could preach three sermons on each of these, okay? but I'm going to cover all of them in the next 21 minutes and 54 seconds. Okay? So here we go. Here, let me give you the five elements of a gospel-centered prayer. Number one, adoration. Starts with adoration. That's verses 9 and 10. This prayer starts with adoration. Look at it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Adoration amounts to almost 50% of the prayer. In the first half of this prayer, there is nothing yet 
about our needs. It is all about God. Why? Why? Because there is nothing that we really need more than to know God. And we will not end up asking, excuse me, we will end up not asking for things correctly when we are not amazed by and satisfied by and enthralled by God. What we most need is to look at God until we are dazzled by him, until we are amazed by him. Some of you think you need a better marriage from God or you need a better job or, or better health and you can ask for those things. But what you most need is to know the treasure that you have in God. That's why you call him first heavenly, because heavenly reminds you of his absolute sovereignty and his consummate beauty. Then you call him holy, which is just a word that means wholeness or perfection. You think about the perf perfection of his ways and his plans. And then you call him father, which is an amazing title. Of all the titles that the sovereign, heavenly, holy God wants us to call him, he doesn't say, address me as Almighty One or Lord Conqueror or Exalted King. He says, call me Daddy. Call me Daddy. You see, before we ask God for a thing, we need to know the treasure that we have in God. Otherwise, everything that you ask for from God ultimately will disappoint you because you'll end up trying to substitute it for him. You'll say, God, I need to be rich. I need to be rich. I need to be healthy. I need to be married. Or I need to be in a better marriage. Or just not in this one. I need this to be happy. And then you'll end up worshiping and depending on those things in place of God. We have to pray with the assurance, you see, that life's greatest treasure is simply knowing God. A lot of the hymns that we sing around here express this. One of my favorites, it's actually an Irish hymn written 1,300 years ago. I'm sure many of you know it. Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise, thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. So you begin with adoration. Right? So you're like, well, all right, adoration, check. So now, I've adored, you know, with the adoration now, give me, give me, give me, give me, you know, no. There's actually another phrase that comes next, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before you get to petition, your second stage is submission. Submission. You see, you're, you're still not in a position to say, give me this, until you first said, your will be done. Because otherwise, what you're saying to God is, God, I know what I need. I don't think you do, though. So I'm going to have to try to convince you of what I need and then coerce you to give it to me. But when you say, God, your will be done, what you're saying is, God, I know that you know what I need. I trust you, so I just want you to give me what you want to give me. There are two phrases that Jesus gives us that are supposed to help us with this, this submission. The first is the little phrase, as it is in heaven. God, let your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. That's not flowery rhetoric. Right? You see, after all, think about this. Heaven is the one place where God's will is perfectly done. And if you haven't read the Bible lately, things going on up there are a whole lot better than they are down here. So when you say, let me have my will in your life like it is in heaven, you're saying, God, I know how good your will is. I trust it. So let it be done in my life the same way it's done in heaven because I know that's the best will. The second is the little word father. When you call God father, you were saying, I know that you are my dad. I know that you care about me, and I know that you want what's best for me even when I don't understand it. Right? I mean, my kids ask me for lots of stuff. It's like one big game around our house. Just ask dad for everything. And whenever they do, they always think, they're little sinners, right? They always think they know best. That three-year-old comes up to me boldly and says, daddy, can we play with the hairdryer in the tub? I'm like, no. No, you will electrocute yourself and you will die. It doesn't make sense to her. She thinks she knows best, right? Hopefully, 
they will recognize that there are some things that I won't give them simply because I know more than they do. And I care too much to answer their requests. We all get that, right? I mean, even if you're not a parent, you get that. Let me ask you a question. Which is greater, the gap between my kids' understanding and mine or the gap between my understanding and God's? Between my understanding and God's, well, then why are you so mad that God hasn't answered your prayers the way that some of you have wanted them to be answered? Tim Keller says that worry and stress are us as spiritual kindergartners believing that we know better than God what we need and worried that God just don't get it. He don't get it yet, and he's not going to give us what we want and what we need. He's going to mess up our lives. Bitterness in our lives is us, again, as spiritual kindergartners, believing that we know, we know better than God how our lives should have turned out. And we're just mad that they didn't. So see, even your asking must be done in trust and submission. Father, I know your will is a good will. Father, I know that you and your hands are the best hands, and I just want to be in your hands. I'll give you a, a little story that I think sums it up for me, an, an illustration. I, um, I've told you this before, but it's been a while, like three months maybe. Um, when I was, uh, I, I was in an airport, because things always happen to pastors in airports. Have you all noticed that? Okay, so I'm in the airport, and um, getting ready to, to board a plane, and, um, uh, which is what you do in an airport. And uh, so as I'm sitting there, um, I'm, it's really crowded. The plane is delayed. It's a bad day. Everybody's in a bad mood. And uh, I'm trying to read my book, but it's noisy, and I can't concentrate because I'm way over the top ADD. And, you know, so everything's going on around me, and I can't focus. And so I noticed this lady sitting right across from me um, in the little waiting area, and she looks kind of interesting. Um, she's not looking at me, uh, so I did what I, what I do in those situations to start conversations as I just stared at her until she looked back. Um, makes them feel a little awkward, but it always works, okay? So she looks up at me, she says, hi, and I said, hi, how are you doing? And, uh, where are you going? And she was, you know, headed somewhere, and I'm going somewhere different. And she's like, she's like, well, what do you do? And I explained to her I was a pastor. I was like, I'm a pastor, and I tell people about Jesus. And I started to talk about, you know, my relationship with Christ. And she says, oh, it's really interesting. She says, I'm sort of a, a religious guru, too. I was like, really? She said, yeah. She says, what I do is I run a shop, and I, I collect, I've collected the best of every religion in the world, and I sell all those things at my shop. She goes, I, I don't think it's really just in one religion. I think it's in a bunch of religions. And she says, let me just give you an example. And she reaches inside of her pocketbook, and she pulls out this little thing called a rosary ring. I've never seen one. Well, a rosary ring was something she'd gotten from the Catholics that you wore on your finger, and you were supposed to wear it when you took off and when you landed in the plane, and it had the little beads around it for the rosary, and you're supposed to go around and then say the rosaries and the Hail Marys uh, during takeoff and during landing. She says, I got this from the Catholics. I thought it was a great idea, because if you hold on to this when you... Uh, when you take off or when you land, God will, will, will keep you safe. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She says, why don't you take one? You're a pastor. I was like, all right. You know? And so she gave it to me, and I, I was looking at it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, what to do in this conversation. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this rosary ring, and it's got a little picture of Jesus crucified on the top of it, or a little image. And I, I'm looking at it. Well, all of a sudden, there's these people, three or four people down from me. Uh, it was an older couple, with all respect. This was the kind of older couple that, um, you know, when they talk to each other, they think they're talking so that only the other person can hear, but in reality, they're talking loud enough for people in China to hear, right? That's, that's this older couple, and she's got the newspaper out, and she's like, oh, she goes, look at the horoscope, and she starts reading the horoscope, and she says, she, it says that whatever we do today will be safe. Isn't that great? The horoscope promises that we're going to be safe, right? Well, this lady across from me, she just lit up. Really? that's what it says. Can I see that? And she's doing that. And she's like, she's, this is awesome. I got a rosary ring. You got a horoscope. And this is a pastor. <laughs> it's perfectly going to be safe. Well, all of a sudden, this guy from three people down on the other side, I don't even know where he's been listening the whole time. He goes, I got St. Christopher in the bag. <laughs> I was like, what, what bag? He goes, what bag? He pulls out a statue. Like, what episode of Star Trek did I just get beamed into? What? You know, he pulls out this this little, um, saint, it's a patron saint of traveling. And he says, I take this everywhere I go on the plane because it, it guarantees my safety. And this woman looks like she is about to have a fit. She's like, oh, St. Christopher, rosary ring, horoscope, pastor, guaranteed safety. What do you say back to that? 
I didn't say anything. I just went back to my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We stopped. I really, I, I didn't say anything. And um, about that time, they called for us to board the plane, and we're walking down the jetway together, and I'm feeling like I got to do something. So I, t- I turned over to her, and I said, hey, thanks for the rosary ring. And she goes, yeah, don't forget to hold on to it when we take off, when we land. I was like, well, I said, listen, I really appreciate you giving me this, and I'm going to hold on to it, and I'm really grateful for it. I said, but you need to understand something. It's just a little dude you got crucified right here on the top. The Bible tells me that he holds me in his hand, right? And because of that, see, I know that when we take off, I'm going to be in his hand. And when we land, I'm going to be in his hand. And if we blow up in midair, I'm still going to be in his hand. (laughs) And I told her, with all due respect, if he's holding me in his hand, I just don't really feel like I need to hold him in mine. Right? Now, I'm not trying to tell you that, like, ooh, I tagged her. Okay, what? I mean, mean, she didn't fall to her knees and get gloriously saved or anything like that. But but see, that's it, is when you pray, is it done in a way for you to get something from God, or is it simply that you know that life's greatest treasure is simply being in his hand, and you possess him? See, adoration, submission, and then, okay, you've been waiting, then petition. Petition, at last, verses 10 through 13. There are three major petitions in here, and so let me just show you each of them real quickly. All right, first petition, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what you're saying is, God, bring the ultimate healing to the world that we all long for, and let me be a part of bringing that healing. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This goes back, by the way, when he says this, give us today our daily bread. It's going back to the whole story of the manna. Now, if you haven't been in church in a while and you're not really familiar with what the manna is, that's this deal where, where God's people were wandering through the wilderness and because they're wandering in the wilderness, there's no McDonald's or Chick-fil-A's out there anywhere, so they don't have anywhere to eat. So every single morning, God provides food for them on the ground called manna. And basically, it was like a little rich cracker with honey on top of it. And so they would go out every morning, and they get these rich crackers with honey, and they would eat them. And that was how they sustained themselves from day to day. And every single morning, God put it there for them. But some of the people didn't like that. They liked the fact that it was there, but they didn't like the fact that every day they had to get up and go out and see if it was out there, even though every day it was. They didn't like that because they're just like us. They wanted like a manna safety deposit box they could put their manna in, and then they would know where the manna is. And so they, they tried to store it up, but God didn't like that because God was saying, I don't want you I don't want you to store it up. I want you to depend on me daily for what you need. You know, he didn't say, give us our weekly bread. He said, give us our daily bread. God wanted them and he wanted us to learn to look to God on a day-by-day basis to meet our daily needs. Now, let's be honest, okay? Most of us, we live in America, a prosperous country. Most of us do not have to worry about where the bread we're going to eat today is going to come from, do we? I mean, very few of you got up this morning and are like, we got no food, we got no jobs, our pants are falling off, you know, I'm sorry, that's uh, dumb and dumber, there's like nine of you in here that get that. Um, Most of us woke up today, right, okay, thank you, most of us woke up today with at least the money that we needed to eat today, or if not, we had a credit card, right? So let me show you where this applies to us in some other places. You ready for this? We show that we don't trust God to provide our daily bread by our lack of generosity in a recession. Many of us are scared to give money because we're a little spooked right now at the economy and we think we gotta hold on to our resources and not give them away because God might not actually provide for us tomorrow. So I need to store it up and the manna safety deposit box. Because who knows if God's going to show up again tomorrow. You see, to have a Christian community nearby is supposed to be good news for the poor during a time of recession. Lots of people give to the poor in times of abundance. But when times are tight, a lot of people are scared and they all end up just sitting on their manna. But Christians are a group of people who aren't supposed to worry about tomorrow. God will give daily bread tomorrow. So today I am free to give away my money because we trust God 
that he will be there tomorrow to provide daily bread then too. To pray, give us our daily bread, means that you look to God every day for all that you will need that day to do his will that day. Now obviously it's, it's more than just money and food. It's wisdom to make decisions. It's strength to handle a difficult relationship or strength to cope with grief or, or strength to overcome an addiction that day. I'll tell you a little secret. I'll tell you why a lot of you are, are so stressed out. Because you are so worried about how you're going to survive in the future. You're like, will I have a job? Will I be married? Is that guy going to ask me out again? What if I make a dumb decision and I end up in a bad place, in debt, in a dead-end job, bad marriage? What if I screw my life up? God does not want you to worry about how you will survive tomorrow. He wants you to thrive today. Let me give you another little secret from the Bible. God only gives the abundant life one day at a time. So you want to live the abundant life. It's not stored up for you in a safety deposit box. It's something that you get from looking to God daily to give you what you need that day. So enjoy his provision today. Thrive today. And trust the ever-present, all-sufficient God for tomorrow. See? Here's his third little petition he gives here. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. This one is probably the one that's most humbling for me because it shows me how absolutely dependent I am on God for everything. Without God, if God took his hand off of me or his eye off of me for a moment, I would veer straight into evil. It's kind of like if you ever had a car that's severely out of alignment right, and you just don't have the money to get it fixed, or you just can't arrange it in your schedule, and so you're driving down the road, and every time you take your hands off the wheel, you know what I'm talking about, it just veers off in the other lanes of traffic. That's what my life is like, right? The moment that God takes his hand off of me, or the moment I take my hand off of God, my heart is so prone to evil that I go to temptation like a moth to a flame. You see? That's what the hymn writer meant when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The presence of God in your life is like an inner light. And like an inner light that the moment you remove it, it begins to fade quickly. It's kind of like if you got one of those watches where the hands glow. And so when you turn off the, the lights at night and you and you go to bed, and you, you wake up an hour later, the hands are still glowing, but if you wake up at four in the morning, and you pick up your watch, you can't see anything because that light has disappeared. That's what the presence of God is like in your life. And Jesus understands that if, if, if we don't ask God on a day-by-day basis to hold us and keep us, we veer into evil. We are so desperate for his presence even to know him. You see, there's your petitions. Let your kingdom come. Let me be a part of that. God, give me what I need today, all that I need. I trust you. And number three, keep me from wandering away from you. Now, I know that some of you are a little held up because there's one little phrase in there that you, you, you just kind of people that think too much, some of you. Um, I, I'm into thinking, okay, so I'm with you. But you're like, okay, the whole like, God, let your will be done and prayer. If it's God's will, why would we need to pray about it? Because if we pray, God's will happens. And if we don't pray, whatever happens is God's will. So I don't get it. Right? You, you been there? Anybody? Come on. Seminary students especially. This is like all you guys do. You don't pray. You just think about this. Okay? Right? You're actually thinking of it entirely wrong. Yes, there are some incredible mysteries of God's sovereignty, which I do not have time to get into today, nor do I understand. Okay? But you've got to understand that the way, watch, the way God's will happens on earth it's through the instrument, instrumentality of our prayer. It's kind of like this. Is it God's will that you were born? Well, yeah, I mean, you're here, right? Nobody's here like God was surprised by them. <laughs> you know, so God's will that you're here, that you're alive. Well, how did you get here? Did you just like fall out of the sky by the decree of God's will? You know, there you are. No, your parents conceived you, right? You want to have kids. You don't just pray and say, God, drop them out of the sky. What, you know, the stork going to come by and drop off a kid? No, I mean, you conceive the kid because conception is the way 
that somebody is born. In the same way, watch, prayer is the means by which God's will is done through your life. So don't put, put up the questions about sovereignty for a minute and realize that when God does something on earth, he does it through the instrumentality of prayer. And there are a lot of you who are missing God's blessing, you are missing God's will from your life precisely because you don't pray. And you're like James says, chapter four, you have not simply because you don't ask. Prayer is the instrument that God uses to bring his will about in your life. All right, let me hit the, the last two really quick here. Stay with me. Recognition, that's the fourth thing. That's verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. We pray recognizing that we are sinful and that God forgives us. Now, there's two ways that you can go wrong here. One is to think too highly of yourself so that you don't think you really sin and need forgiveness. The other is to think too lowly of yourself and not believe that God has really forgiven you. The first, thinking so highly of yourself that you don't think that you sin and need forgiveness, that's blind pride. And the second, thinking so lowly of yourself that you don't think that God would forgive you is, is unbelief. All right, so recognition, that's the fourth thing, verse 12. The fifth thing, response. That's the last part of verses 12 and then verses 14 and 15. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, the assumption that Jesus makes is that if we see how much God has forgiven us, we will forgive others. This actually, watch this, this actually works for Jesus like another acid test. See verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What he's saying is, if we know how much God has forgiven us, we are immersed in a culture of grace. And so forgiveness and grace toward others just flows out of us to other people. On the other hand, if you have a hard time forgiving others, you must not realize how much God has forgiven you. You must still relate to God on the basis of performance. You think that God is giving you what you deserve, and so you're giving to other people what they deserve. And that's why you don't forgive them, because they have hurt you and disappointed you, and they don't deserve your kindness. And that simply shows that you don't know God at all. No matter how Christian you look or sound, no matter how many Bible verses you know, or how much you do in ministry, or how long you've been in church, you don't really know God at all because the only way to know God is to recognize your sinfulness and trust entirely in his grace and his mercy. You see, when a person has a hard time forgiving somebody else, a husband, an ex-husband, a wife, a business partner, a father, an ex-girlfriend. It's out of an, watch this, inward sense of superiority. Inwardly, you look at that other person and you say, I would never do what they did. And that's why I don't forgive them, because I wouldn't do that. But when you see that you are guilty of the same kinds of things that this person has done to you, and you see that God has forgiven you of those very things, you find yourself so much more willing to forgive others. Does that make sense? I learned this a few years ago in my marriage. My wife, who is awesome, would hurt me or disappoint me like all married couples do to one another. And I didn't want to forgive her because I felt like she wronged me and I thought I didn't deserve whatever it was she was doing to me. But one day a friend pointed out to me that my own life was characterized by the same sin and selfishness that I was mad at in her. And that God accepted me freely. And in that moment, I can remember when it happened, my heart softened. I would even say in many ways it saved our, our marriage. Because I said, I won't give to my wife what she deserves and hopefully... She won't give to me what I deserve because God's not given either one of us what we deserve. The gospel established a culture of grace in our marriage that saved it from destruction. When you really know God, you are immersed in a culture of grace. You are so amazed by God's grace and kindness and generosity to you that it flows out of you to others. If not, listen, it doesn't matter how sweetly you pray, 
how Christian you look, you don't know God. Because grace and generosity are the marks of the person who really knows God. You understand? You get that? It's not all the marks we think it is. Grace and generosity. By the way, I say generosity. Jesus, I think, could just as easily here have switched that last little phrase to say, let us be generous to others as you've been generous to us. The mark that you have encountered the gospel, the mark that you know God is you're so overwhelmed by your generosity that you freely give away your money to others because you realize, see, when you're stingy, you're like, I earned this and I keep it. When you know the gospel, you know that you don't earn anything. That God is not giving you what you earned. He gave you grace. And so you take what you have, your resources, and you pour them out for those who do not have, just like God poured himself out for you. So that's it. Gospel-centered prayer is adoration, submission, petition, recognition, and response. I can tell you one more thing about this prayer that to me is just absolutely remarkable. By the way, this is, when you get this, this is how you'll really learn to pray this prayer. Jesus prayed this prayer for you when he died. With two exceptions. But Jesus prayed at the hour of his death, God, your kingdom come. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he let himself be crucified. But because of that, I could be forgiven. Because of that, God's kingdom could come into my life. Because of that, I could have the assurance that a loving heavenly father would provide my daily bread. But here are the two exceptions. When Jesus prayed this prayer at the hour of his death, he omitted two parts of it. First, he did not call God his father. The only time in his entire life in all the New Testament that Jesus did not address God as father. Why? Because the father had forsaken him. The father had forsaken him so that I could be accepted as his son. The father had turned his back on his son so that I could be received into the eternal fellowship of the Father. The second phrase Jesus did not pray was, Lord, deliver uh, me from evil. He submitted himself to be destroyed by evil so that I could be delivered from evil. And because of that, because he prayed that prayer, I can now say to God without fear, my Father who art in heaven, holy and wonderful is your name let your kingdom come let your will be done in me because i trust it on earth in my life just like it is in heaven god give me today my daily bread because i know you know about my needs and i know you care about them more than i do and god lead me not into temptation but deliver me from evil and forgive me of my sins while I am responding to that and forgiving others and being generous with others because Jesus, yours is the kingdom and the power and glory and you turned your back on the kingdom, the power and the glory so that I in you could have the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. You see, you can't pray this prayer until you get the gospel. The gospel that you are not saved by earning your place before God. You are saved because God in Christ did all that was necessary to save you. And you receive that not as something you work for, but as something simply as a free gift. And when you understand that and when you believe it, you are born again and this becomes your prayer. Have you experienced the gospel? Have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you been accepted into God's fatherhood by what Christ has done on your behalf? If not, I want you to do that today. 
And if you have, see, I want you to see that all real prayer begins with the gospel. That's why I've told you before that there are three things that I pray every morning that are basically just a summary of this. In fact, let me do this. Pull out in your worship guide this little green sheet that's here, okay? At all of our campuses, I want you to pull this out. Pull this out right here. You got it? Little green sheet. On the front it says OMG. Turn it on the back, okay? And what you'll see is that they're in bold. We actually wrote it out for you, the three things that I pray each morning. And basically it's just the gospel that I pray back to God. And in just a minute, our worship team is going to come up at all of our campuses and what I want you to do is I want you to pray that prayer. I want you to pray the gospel back to God. I've given you a space right here below that where you can actually rewrite it in your own words. Right, like for example, look at the second one. God, your presence and approval is all I need to have joy today. You might think about all the other things that you think you need to have happiness or joy. And just write it down. God, I don't need X and I don't need this and I don't need this. Your approval is what I need to have joy. Right? Then the last one, God, everything the gospel tells me about your intentions for my life is true. Think about those different situations in your life that you, that you need God to work right now and just say, God, I believe that you are my father and I believe you'll speak into this situation. I actually would invite you to write in the next few minutes. In just a second, at all of our campuses, again, I'm just going to give you two or three minutes to do this. All right? Now, before they do that, before we, we turn it over to them, I want to tell you one other thing, and that is tomorrow, Monday, 18th of May, 518. I'm asking, I need to ask everybody in our church that's a member here and a part of that, I, I'd like for you to set an alarm or whatever, and at 518 p.m., that you stop and you pray for 10 minutes tomorrow. Why? Because there's a lot of things that are going on in this church right now where we got a lot of decisions to make. God has given us some incredible doors of ministry to go through and to be totally honest with you guys again i say this without it's not manipulative i'm just saying we just don't have the resources to do all of them which means we need right now some real wisdom to know what to say no to and what to say yes to we need god to provide for us we need to know where he's telling us to trust him and where he's closing the door so tomorrow at 5 18 i want to ask that the whole church stop where you are if you're around somebody from our church get together and pray for 10 minutes tomorrow morning on my blog jdgreer.com all right if you'll go there i'll give you exactly what i would like for you to pray i'll just print it out for you and you can can look at that tomorrow at 5 18 if you would make a note and you would do that so we could we could pray together as a church all right at all of our campuses i want you to take two or three minutes i want you to look at that gospel prayer and i want you just to rewrite it in your own words and pray it pray it back to god okay